Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 24. As we look back, the most regretful times of life are missed opportunities. I saw a few of them last weekend on the sports recap. Mark McGuire hit his 61st home run off the stadium club, and it came down and hit the hands of several fans rolled under the seats of several fans, and they missed it. Gerald Moore worked hard in the preseason, won the starting halfback role for the St. Louis Rams, only to lose it by fumbling three times on opening day. Depending on how you look at it, the fellow who got home run number 62 gave it back for a trip to Disney World. He may look back on that as a missed opportunity. But you know, those things pale in comparison with the most tragic of all missed opportunities. And that's hearing the message of the gospel and understanding it and being moved by it and then putting off and ignoring and rejecting Jesus. There is no more tragic missed opportunity than that. And the Bible gives us many examples of people who missed the opportunity for salvation. The children of Israel were delivered from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They were led by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire to the border of the promised land. And they refused to go in. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Missed opportunity. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 25 of ten virgins. They were all told that the bridegroom was coming. They gathered at the right place and they all fell asleep. And when the shout came that the bridegroom had arrived, five of them were not ready. They had no oil in their lamps. And by the time they ran to get some, it was too late. The door was shut. Missed opportunity. The pagan philosophers in Athens heard Paul preach the gospel on Mars Hill. And they thought what he had to say was pretty interesting. But they said this to Paul in Acts 17.32, We shall hear you again concerning this. But you know what? They never did. Because Paul left never to return. Missed opportunity. Judas was granted the privilege that only 11 others were to live with Jesus for three years as his disciple. He heard everything that Jesus taught. In fact, he went out and preached the truth. He even performed miracles and cast out demons. He could have sat on one of the twelve thrones in the kingdom. He could have had his name on one of the foundation stones in the New Jerusalem. He could have been one of the most honored saints in history. Instead, Judas became a thief and a hypocrite and a traitor. He threw away his opportunity for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus summed up his life this way in Matthew 26, 24. Woe to that man 
by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, it would have been better for him if he had not been born. Well, Acts 24 gives us another tragic example of missed opportunity. It's seen in the life of a man by the name of Felix. He was the governor of Judah. He was the successor to Pontius Pilate, another man who missed his opportunity. And in this chapter, Paul is brought into court where Felix sits as judge. And as the passage unfolds, it will become clear that Paul is not the only one on trial. Felix is on trial. He is on trial in the court of God. He will hear the gospel. He will understand the gospel. He will be moved by the gospel. And yet he will put it off and miss his opportunity. Now we can divide this passage into three parts. They are the three parts you would expect to find in a courtroom trial. The prosecution, the defense, and the verdict. First of all, the prosecution in verses 1 to 9. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with a certain attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. It didn't take long for the Jewish leaders to show up. In only five days, they had put together their case. They had found a lawyer. They had traveled the 65 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea. They probably moved quickly for fear that Felix might release Paul if they didn't bring charges. And it's obvious that they were serious in their opposition to Paul because they didn't just send some incidental representatives. They sent the high priest and some of the elders. And they also hired an attorney. This was a Roman court. Paul was being tried on Roman charges. And the Jews were not familiar with the procedures. And so they wanted all the expertise that money could buy. Verse 2. And after Paul had summoned, was summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Now this is a sharp attorney. He knows that before you win your case, you better try to win over the judge. And so he begins with flattery. Because of you, most excellent Felix, we are enjoying peace. And everywhere we look, we see your wonderful reforms. And we're so thankful that you're our governor. Now, there's not a thread of truth in any of that. If they were enjoying peace, then why did it take nearly 500 soldiers to escort one man from Jerusalem to Caesarea? And if they were so thankful he was their governor, then why did they two years later petition the emperor for his ouster? You see, Felix was considered to be a totally incompetent ruler. Tacitus, the Roman historian, said of him, with all cruelty and lust, he exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. But you see, Tertullus is not worried about being accurate here. He's worried about winning brownie points. And so he begins with flattery. But apparently, Felix is not buying it. Now, the, the passage doesn't say, but I assume Felix is sitting there rolling his eyes or frowning 
or yawning. Somehow he's communicating to Tertullus, this is getting you nowhere. And so verse 4 says, But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. Tertullus says, Okay, okay, I'll drop the flattery and get right down to business. And then like any good lawyer, he promises to be brief. And this, this is one promise that he keeps. Because just as he had to dig deep to find a little good to say about Felix, he has to dig deep to find a little bad to say about Paul. And we'll see that his accusations against Paul are no more truthful than his flattery. He spells out those accusations in verses 5 and 6. There are three of them. Number one, he accuses Paul of sedition. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. He's accusing Paul of sedition, insurrection, revolution. He is stirring up discord among the Jews throughout the world, inciting riots and instigating revolts. Now, this was an accusation that would get the attention of Rome because they were very careful to keep peace within the empire. Second accusation is sectarianism at the end of verse 5. And he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And here they're accusing Paul of being a cult leader. And what is the cult? Well, it's Christianity. But if you'll notice here, he calls him a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Why does he use that phrase? Well, because he wants to make it sound very obscure. He doesn't say he's a leader of the Christians. He doesn't say he's a leader of the way. He says he's a leader of the Nazarenes, some obscure cult. And then it's also a derogatory phrase. He's one of the leaders of that cult that follows Jesus of Nazareth. And Nazareth was associated with a negative connotation. You remember that Nathaniel said to Philip in John 1.46, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so Paul is not only accused of threatening the peace of Rome through revolution, he's accused of threatening the peace of Israel through religious radicalism. And then there's a third accusation, and that is sacrilege in verse 6. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. Now, this is the only accusation we heard of when he was in Jerusalem, that he took Gentiles into the temple and desecrated it. This was not a violation of Roman law. It was actually a violation of Jewish law. You say, well, why did they bring it up in a Roman court? Well, I think there's two reasons. One would be to justify their actions because he says at the end of verse 6, and then we arrested him. It's to justify the, the actions that they took against Paul But secondly, I think they were hoping that if Felix couldn't find Paul guilty of any Roman violation, that he would take Paul and hand him back to the Jews and say, you try him yourself. And then when they took him back to Jerusalem, those 40-plus assassins were still waiting with their plot to put Paul to death. And then if you'll notice in your Bible, some of you have nothing in verse 7. Others have some words there that are not really in the oldest manuscripts. It reads like this, And we wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias the commander came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. Now if this is in the text, all it's indicating is that they want to twist the truth even further. 
And what the lawyer does here is since Lysias, the Roman commander, is not there, he shifts the blame to him. He says, we were having a nice little court session in Jerusalem, very peacefully, and Lysias came along with much violence and took Paul away. Now, that's just the opposite of what happened. And Felix knew that because he had received a letter from Lysias, and in Acts 23, 27, it spells out the facts fact that it was the Jews who were violently wanting to put Paul to death, and he stepped in and rescued Paul by arresting him and sending him to Caesarea. Verse 8, And by examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The lawyer says, All you have to do is examine Paul, and it will be obvious that these accusations are true. Verse 9, And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. This was not a case where the lawyer misrepresented his clients. When the lawyer spells out the false accusations, the Jews say, that's exactly right. That's what he did. And so the prosecution rests. Which brings us to the second point, the defense in verses 10 to 21. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, Paul doesn't have an attorney to represent him. And since the other attorney began with flattery, Paul knows he needs to say something nice. And so, in all honesty, the only thing he can come up with is, you've been governor for a long time. And Felix had been governor for five years, and prior to that, he had served as an assistant in Samaria. And Paul's point seems to be this. I cheerfully make my defense before you because you've been around for a while and you understand the beliefs and the customs of Israel. And then he proceeds to make his defense, refuting each charge. First of all, the charge of sedition in verses 11 to 13. The charge that Paul was a revolutionary. And Paul refutes that with three statements. Number one, he says, I had no time, verse 11. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Paul says, they're accusing me of starting a revolution. That's impossible. I only came to Jerusalem 12 days ago and I spent five of those days in Caesarea. I haven't had time to do what they're claiming I did. Secondly, he says, I made no effort, verse 12. And neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Because of the warnings Paul had received that the persecution awaited him at Jerusalem, because of the advice given him by James and the elders in the church at Jerusalem, Paul had kept a very low profile in Jerusalem. And so he can say, I didn't even so much as have a discussion with anyone anywhere, much less start a riot. I made no effort. And then his third point is, they have no proof, verse 13. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. This is a case with a bunch of accusations and no evidence. And so against the charge of sedition, Paul says, I had no time to instigate an insurrection. I made no effort to do so, and they have no proof. 
And then he defends himself against the second accusation, and that is sectarianism, that he was a cult leader. And he does so in verses 14 to 16. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers. Paul says, I will admit this much, I am a member of the way. And notice he prefers to call it the way rather than the sect of the Nazarenes. I will admit to you that I am part of the way. I am a Christian. I am part of the Christian church. But then he goes on to show that it's not a sect. And he does that four four ways. Number one, he says, we serve the same God, verse 14. But this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers. I'm obviously not a cult leader because I serve the God of our fathers. I serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same God that these men claim to worship. Secondly, he says, we believe the same scriptures at the end of verse 14, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Paul says, I'm obviously not a cult leader because I believe in everything in the law and prophets. The same law and prophets that these men claim to believe. Thirdly, he says, we hope in the same promise. Verse 15, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Paul says, I'm obviously not a cult leader because I hope in the resurrection to come. And then he adds, and these men cherish that hope as well. Now, that was a dig on the Sadducees because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, but they're not going to bring it up in this context. In fact, it's very interesting here that Paul as a Christian was actually closer to mainstream Jewish theology than the Sadducees were. And then he makes a fourth point, and that is we value the same lifestyle, verse 16. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Paul says, I am obviously not a cult leader because I maintain a blameless conscience before God and men, just as these men would say that they do. And so Paul doesn't see himself as a former Jew. He sees himself as a fulfilled Jew. He says, I am not part of a cult. And then the third accusation is sacrilege, that he defiled the temple And he defends himself against that in verses 17 to 21 with four points. Number one, he says, there's no grounds, verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. Paul says, where are the grounds for this accusation that I defiled the temple? He says, I came to Jerusalem not to cause problems. I came to Jerusalem on a mission of mercy to bring alms to my nation. And there he's referring to the gifts that he brought to the needy Jewish Christians. And he says, they found me in the temple not defiling it, but abiding by its regulations. I was going through ceremonial purification like the temple required. And when they found me, I was alone. I hadn't gathered a crowd and I wasn't causing an uproar. And so there's no grounds. Secondly, he shows there's no witnesses. Verse 18 at the end. He says, but there were certain Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. 
These certain Jews from Asia were the ones who made the accusation against Paul that he had taken a Gentile into the temple. And Paul says, if they saw me do it, then they ought to be here in court as eyewitnesses. And since they're, they're not here, there's obviously nothing to tell. And then third, he says, there's no conviction, verse 20. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Paul says, I have already been tried by a Jewish court. Let them tell you what they found me guilty of. Nothing. And if they couldn't convict me in a Jewish court, how do they expect to convict me in a Roman court? And then his fourth point, there's no charge. Verse 21, other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Paul says they couldn't even come up with a charge against me when I was in their court, and so I had to tell them what I was on trial for which was the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul lays out a masterful defense. He exonerates himself before the governor on all three counts, which brings us to the third point, and that's the verdict, beginning in verse 22. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen. There were no eyewitnesses to back up the accusations against him. And as it says here, Felix had a more exact knowledge about the way. In other words, he knew about Christians. He knew that they were not political revolutionaries. And so there's only one possible verdict that he could arrive at. And that's not guilty. But Felix also knew that if he laid down that verdict, it would create problems with the Jews. It would create possible unrest with the Jews. And so like many politicians before and since, he was trapped between justice and popularity. And so what did he do? He put them off. He delayed. And his excuse was that he needed more information from Lysias. Of course, that's not true. Because we know that he has a letter in his pocket from Lysias. And Acts chapter 23 and verse 29 tells us that there in that letter, Lysias says that Paul is not guilty of any crime. Nevertheless, verse 23, and he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. Because there's no real case against him and because he is a Roman citizen, he's held in custody with very limited restraints and very liberal visiting rights. Verse 24. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. You have to wonder why Felix called for Paul on this occasion. And I think it may have had something to do with his wife, Drusilla, because her family had had a long history of involvement with the way. Her great-grandfather, Herod the Great, tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem. Her great-uncle, Herod Antipas, had John the Baptist beheaded 
and had mocked Jesus at his trial. And her father, Herod Agrippa I, killed the apostle James and had Peter imprisoned in Acts chapter 12. And I imagine she grew up in the household hearing the stories about Peter, how he had been in prison and suddenly he was gone. And I'm sure her dad was always scratching his head saying, I wonder whatever happened to that guy. And now they've got another apostle, Paul, in prison, and she wants to hear from him. And so he's invited in in front of Felix and Drusilla to speak. What's Paul going to talk about? Well, it says he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. And we have his outline in verse 25. It says, and he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. That's a great outline. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Yesterday's sins, today's temptations, and tomorrow's judgment. First of all, he talks about righteousness. Paul began by setting God's standard. A holy God requires holiness. And whenever you lift the standard of God, which is righteousness, the purpose is to allow man to see that he falls short, that he's a sinner. Dr. Carl Menninger, one of the world's leading psychiatrists, published a book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? And he points out in that book that the very word sin has gradually dropped from our vocabulary. And not only has the word dropped from our vocabulary, but it's also dropped from our thoughts. And he says this, we talk about mistakes, weaknesses, inherited tendencies, faults, and even errors, but we do not face up to the fact of sin. I was pleased to finally hear the president use that word on Friday. It may be a little late, but he put aside words like improper, inappropriate, misleading, and he said there's no fancy way to say, I have sinned. You see, when we lift the standard of God, which is righteousness, that's the goal. That in light of His standard, we would see our sin. And then secondly, Paul talks about self-control. That's today's temptations. It seems that man can control everything but himself. And Felix and Drusilla were prime examples of a lack of self-control. He seduced her while she was the wife of the king of Emesa. He talked her into divorcing her husband and becoming his third wife. And so though she was a Jewess, as it says in verse 24, she lived as if God had never given the Ten Commandments on Sinai. And Felix was probably the most unscrupulous governor Judah had ever had. In this passage alone, we see that he would lie, he would take bribes, he would make decisions based on whatever was politically advantageous to him. And so self-control was something neither Felix nor Drusilla knew much about. And then he moves to his third point, and that is the judgment to come. And this is the consequences of sin. As Paul said to the Greek philosophers in Acts 17, 31, God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. God's righteousness and our lack of self-control lead to the judgment to come. But that's not all that Paul said to them. 
Because the thrust of his message is given at the end of verse 24, and that is he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. He gave them the answer. He said, God's standard is righteousness. You have fallen short. You face the judgment to come, but Jesus came to die in your place and to provide you with forgiveness and to give you his righteousness to put it to your account. And when we become believers, when we place our faith in Him, the Spirit of God comes within us, and the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And as believers, we no longer face the judgment to come. As Paul wrote earlier in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul stressed to Felix and Drusilla that Jesus Christ would either be their Savior or their judge. And what was the response? Look at verse 25. And Felix became frightened. Felix understood the gospel. And he came under conviction. He realized his sin. He realized that he deserved the wrath to come. He realized that he was going to receive that wrath apart from Jesus Christ. And he trembled. And then what's the next thing he did? Verse 25. And he said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. He heard the truth. He was convicted about the truth. He got fearful about the truth. And what did he do? He procrastinated. He said, When I have a convenient time, I will call you. Paul, you're going to be around here for a while. I've got plenty of opportunities. Edward Young wrote, Procrastination is the thief of time. I would go beyond that. Procrastination is the thief of souls. Because when we say, one of these days, they never come. There's only one convenient time to trust Jesus Christ, and that's now. The Bible says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And Felix is a great example of that. Look at verse 26. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. Yes, Felix called for Paul again but he never came under conviction. He called for Paul again, but he never again trembled because he experienced what many people experience, and that is when we say no to Jesus Christ, our heart becomes hardened. And that was the case with him. And so the only reason he wanted to talk to Paul was in hopes that he might bribe the governor for his release. Verse 27, But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Felix was only governor for two more years. History records tell us that he sent in his troops to suppress a riot in Caesarea and as a result killed many of the Jews. They became so irate that they petitioned Rome to remove Felix from office. And so he was called back to Rome by Nero, 
And yet he left Paul imprisoned, hoping to ease the tension with the Jews. And he stands as a tragic example of missed opportunity. His mind was enlightened. Verse 22 says he had a more exact knowledge about the way. His emotions were stirred. Verse 25 says he became frightened. He had a private audience with the Apostle Paul whenever he wanted him for two years. And yet he procrastinated himself to hell. The story is told of a meeting that Satan had with four leading demons. He wanted to come up with a new lie to keep people from coming to Christ. And the first demon said, I've got it. Let's go to earth and tell them there's no God. And Satan says, no, they'll never believe that. All they have to do is look around and they can tell there's a God. And the second demon says, said, I've got it. Let's go and tell them there's no heaven. And Satan said, that won't work because everyone has an innate sense of the eternal within them. They know there's a heaven. And the third demon said, let's tell them there's no hell. And Satan said, no, their conscience tells them their sins will be judged. We've got to come up with a better lie than that. And the fourth demon quietly spoke up. And he said, I think I've solved your problem. Let's go to earth and tell them there's no hurry. That's the lie that Felix fell for. And the question is, are we going to learn from his example? The best time to trust Jesus Christ is now. We're going to close this morning by singing hymn number 478. And as God may have spoken to your heart this morning, as you sit here, maybe knowing that you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so. Because today is a day of salvation. We're going to stand together as we sing, and as we do, if God is speaking to your heart today, I'm going to ask you to come forward as we sing together. Number 478.